Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted the bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten that exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor dis- discourage the when you are the when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. The scourger, scourgers every, and scourgers every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, Afterward, it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. You may be seated. Before we dive in here to uh, verse 3 and following in Hebrews 12, I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer. Lord, we ask that you would transform us through the study of your word today. Make us what you want us to be. Incline our ears to hear your truth. Instruct us through your discipline. Help us, Lord, not to avoid or or turn to the side from your discipline, but to receive it as you intend it, being sons and daughters of the King. I pray that each one here can say it is well with my soul, having received and benefited from your disciplinary hand. 
remind us, Lord, today as we read your word about a subject of of discipline. Remind us that you are always good. The psalmist says you are good and do good. So, Father, we just want to acknowledge that and thank you for always being good. We pray this in the name of your good Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, moved by the Holy Spirit, Paul writes these words to the church at Thessalonica. This is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, a few verses in chapter 4. This comes from God's Word, from the Bible. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Verses 7 and 8 says, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, listen to what it says, He who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given to us His Holy Spirit. In this particular passage in Thessalonians 4, the Bible links the will of God to your sanctification. A sanctification is one big long word that it really has in mind being set apart to God. The will of God is that you would be sanctified, set apart unto Him. The Bible also in that same passage links your set apartness, your sanctification to holiness. He's called you to be holy. So a rejection of holy living is synonymous with a rejection of God. Have you ever thought about that? He's given to you, if you are in Christ, the Spirit of God to reside within you forever. Listen, His name, maybe sometimes we've forgotten this. His name is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. He's shaping you, molding you, endeavoring to refine you with the result that your vessel might be a holy vessel, useful for the master. God has not called us to uncleanness, but in holiness. And a rejection of holiness is a rejection of God himself. God has said, be holy because I'm holy. And yet what we see in the scriptures is a sin that so easily entangles, we read that last week, in this race of faith. We end up doing what we don't want to do, and we all too regularly don't do what we should be doing. Amen? That's Romans 7. The Bible instructs us that sin has been completely paid for by Jesus' one-time sacrifice at the cross. And yet, sin remains in these earthen tents for the duration of our pilgrimage here. So we saw last week that we also, that's how it begins in chapter 12, verse 1, we also are called to run this race of faith, motivated by the examples in Hebrews 11. Motivated and encouraged most of all by Jesus himself. 
our leader, our pioneer, our forerunner. We're called to run the race of faith, laying aside the obstacles in our path, the weights, the sin that so easily ensnares. We're called to run the race of faith with endurance. It's a long-distance race all the way to the finish line. We're called to run the race that is set before us. And we talked about how this race is one with, with some common characteristics for each one of us following Jesus. To get an indicator of the race before us, we need to look unto Jesus to see the race that was set before Him. His course led to a cross. His path was littered with pain and suffering and trials and ultimately death. The race set before us is a race that calls us to lay down our lives for the one who ran on our behalf. I want you to see this morning up front who this Jesus is. I want to remind you of his, of his nature I want you to, I'm going to remind you that he's now seated in majesty. All authority has been granted to the Son. He reigns on high. He's the King of kings and he rules as Lord of lords. He's all powerful and he knows everything there is to know about every single one of you here. And he sits at the right hand of the throne of his father, but for a time. I was reminded of that hymn. One day he's coming and it is going to be a glorious day. One day and he's coming. I want you to see who who Jesus is. I want to remind you of his character. I want to remind you of his resume of marvelous deeds. I want to bring to your attention the, the magnificent name of Jesus. There's no other name, the Bible says, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He's our Savior and our God. I want you to take in this morning who He is, and I'd like to refresh you and remind you to be amazed and to marvel that Jesus is your Redeemer and Strong Tower. And as you're thinking about who Jesus is, I'd like to remind you of the verse in Hebrews 5, verse 8, that says, Though he was a son, talking about Jesus, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience. Listen to how he learned obedience. By the things which he suffered. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Listen, Jesus is God's son. You'd think that the son would get a pass on the hard stuff. Not so with Jesus. Instead, he's given the hardest stuff. He's led to a cross. Though a son, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. Now tell me. If the Son of God suffers through crucifixion, how does the disciple of Jesus think he can live with health, wealth, and prosperity all of his days? If even the Son of God endured sufferings, what might the sons of men be led to endure here on earth? 
If Christ willingly endured the cross for the sake of sinners, what are we willing to endure in response? You know, endurance has been a key theme in this book, and it implies a long, arduous, difficult journey. No one is called to endure when the road is easy and the duration short. You think about that? It's a pretty meaningless word when it's easy and and short. Look in your Bibles to chapter 12, verse 3. For consider him, him, him who endured. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. The word consider is not just consider as a thought. No, it has in mind to contemplate, to meditate, meditate upon him who endured. Think often of the one who endured such hostility from sinners. Earlier we've been called to look unto Jesus as we run the race. And now here in verse 3, it's thinking about Jesus. And I would ask the question, why the need to consider Jesus? He gives us the answer in the text. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. Thinking about Jesus, we need to, as we run the race, think about Jesus, what's at stake? Our soul. Weary soul. A discouraged soul. The listener to whom the writer of Hebrews is addressing this letter, the listener is faced with the reality of enduring through Twofold challenge. A challenge on the outside from Roman persecution. And a challenge on the inside from the Jewish brethren who desired that they return to the Old Testament sacrificial system and abandon the life of faith inaugurated by Jesus. Lest you grow weary and discouraged along the way, the listener is called to consider, to think about, to meditate upon, to bring to remembrance what Christ endured from the hands of sinful men. Look at verse 4. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed. By the way, this is a rebuke. You've not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Wrestling against sin. The word is uh, agonizing against sin. In other words, the challenges that are facing the listener, the writer says, while they're difficult, they're not even in the same league as Jesus. He's saying, it's not as bad as you think it is. What you're going through. All the more reason to look unto Jesus, to consider and think about, set your mind on things above, not things here on earth. In your own striving against sin, you've not yet resisted to bloodshed. 
And yet for many of us, it's, it's hard to get our eyes off self, off our situation, off our tough circumstances. It's hard to set our minds upon anything outside of our existing trial. That phrase, striving against sin, you've not resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And I would even ask the question and put forward the question, who today is striving against sin anyway? As I look around, I don't see a whole lot of folks striving against sin. Church, it's something we need to be doing. Especially, especially in light of the fact that he's called us to be holy. If he's called us to be holy, we cannot be dabbling in sin at the same time. Carrying our sins and trying to be holy. Think about the foolishness of that. Listen, your trials that you have, whatever your trial is, the degree of difficulty of your trial is always going to pale in comparison to the Lord Jesus. Always. Always. The rebuke here in verse 4 is not so much to minimize the listener's difficult situation. But instead it's to raise the bar on what Jesus did. It's, It's to magnify His endurance. His striving against sin. His willingness to take your place, to take your sins upon Himself as He bore the exhaustive wrath of God in your place at the cross. The Bible says in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. He died to secure your forgiveness and provide for you and me everlasting life. Look at verse 5. And, that's a significant word there in the text, and, continuing this You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. The idea here is that you have completely forgotten. You've completely forgotten this exhortation which speaks to you as sons. You're not in your right mind. You're not thinking rightly. All the more reason to consider him. That's why it's put forward. Consider him. Think about him. You've forgotten. Think about it, friends. About trying to work through a trial. You're undergoing persecution in your life. And you try to navigate through all of that without the word of God. Think about how you operate and make decisions if the word of God isn't in you. Anyone here ever left the word of God out in decisions that they've made? Anybody? Ever happen? Is there an earnest desire to see that God's word is influencing the decisions made in your home. See, the writer here says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. The the remainder of verse 5 and all of 6 
contains this specific exhortation, which is taken from Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. That's a pretty significant aspect as well. It's a tragedy, really, when you step back and you think about what he's saying. To have forgotten, to have just pushed to the side the very words of God. Notice these words speak. You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks. Speaks. It's, it's uh, the word dialogue. It's where we have conversation. This word speaks to us. It's speaking to us. And yet, you've forgotten completely this word which speaks. He's given his word to speak to us. What a tragedy that we would just put it to the side. What a tragedy that we would just neglect it and forsake it. This word he speaks, he speaks as unto sons and daughters of his. See, because God's words are personal words to us for his children to take in. His words are instructive and they're intended to guide our way according to his purposes that we might live holy lives. The listener had forgotten the exhortation addressed to them as sons. And here's the exhortation. Look in your Bible. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. You know, some of us, some of us maybe if we don't get anything else today, maybe we need to hear that one phrase. Maybe we need to mark that, write that one down. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he disciplines, and scourges every son whom he receives. And verse 5 really opens up the window for the rest of the passage through verse 11, which is where we're going to go for this morning. Hearing that the audience has forgotten the exhortation, and having that exhortation before us here in Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, this provides the framework for the context. The church was under the disciplinary hand of God, and yet didn't know how to handle it. They didn't know what to do, and they didn't quite understand the need for God's discipline. Listen, all of God's word is profitable, is it not? It's all profitable. It's profitable for what? For doctrine, for rebuke, ouch, ouch. It's profitable for rebuke. We don't like rebuke, but we need to understand it's profitable for our rebuke. It's profitable for correcting us. It's profitable for instructing us in righteousness so that we might be complete, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 16 and 17. It's profitable. How is it that we declare ourselves to be a people of the book and yet fail to have the book with us on our lips, readily available in our hearts, in our minds? I find it interesting that the teaching point in Hebrews 12, listen, the teaching point right here in Hebrews 12 
comes from an exhortation. Listen, the exhortation is not in Deuteronomy. The exhortation is not in the Psalms. The exhortation is not in any of the prophets. The exhortation is in that practical, wonderful, instructional book called Proverbs. Proverbs. That's where the exhortation comes from. Out of this proverb, this exhortation from Proverbs 3, the writer unpacks four benefits of God's discipline. Four benefits. Four benefits of God's discipline. Here's the first one. God's discipline, it's always loving. Always. Always loving. Okay, let's, let's remember that. These, these four things are going to be real, they're going to be little bullets, just like this, one word deal. But I want you to remember, his discipline is always loving. It's always loving. Verse 6 says, For whom the Lord loves... He chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. The word paideia, discipline, instructive discipline. One writer said that that God's discipline, his paideia, involves training, instruction, and firm guidance, firm guidance, as well as reproof, correction, and punishment. This activity arises out of a parent-child relationship. Another writer speaks of this paideia and and speaks of it in the Jewish context and says that in Judaism, a father was required to provide for the instruction of his sons and daughters and to teach them good behavior. Whipping was accepted along with other disciplinary measures. The rod, as we read in Proverbs. Spanking. Chastising. Any of those words we probably use today. The word scourges, when it says in verse 6 that he scourges every son whom he receives. Listen, the word for scourge there is the same word that's used for Jesus when he's about to go to the cross. There's no different word here. Same word. Scourges. The image that comes to mind is one of pain as we think about the scourging of Jesus. Here as it's replied to this exhortation of God's discipline, he scourges every son whom he receives. The point is not that we are to scourge our own children. This is speaking of what God does in his discipline in the lives of his children Severe anguish, pain. But I want you to notice something, even as it says scourge. He scourges the ones he receives, yes. But I want you to notice the connection with instructive discipline. Whom he loves, he chastens. Whom he receives, he scourges. To what end? For what purpose? Well, the text is going to bear this out. For now, I just want you to know that God's discipline is always loving. Think about it. He disciplines us 
because he loves us. That's why he disciplines us. You know, when I tell one of my, my daughters riding a bike down the road, don't go past the red barn. It's not because I just want to be heavy-handed. It's not because I want to squash all their fun. It's because I love them. I don't want them to go too far down the road where we can't see them. When we're in the parking lot and I say, hold on to my hand, it's not so that I can just control the situation. It's not to be mean. But it's an understanding that I love them and I'm trying to protect them, understanding there are lots of cars that may not see them. God disciplines us. He instructs us. And sometimes that discipline comes in a very painful way in our lives. But I want to remind you this morning that his discipline is always loving. It's always loving. He disciplines you because he loves you. What else do we learn from the text about God's discipline? Well, not only is it loving, but it's relational. Relational. God's discipline is relational. Verses 7 and 8. If you endure chastening, or some translations, it is for discipline that you endure. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. There's the relational aspect. He deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all sons have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. God's discipline is relational. One writer here says that the question expects, the question being what son is there whom a father does not chasten. The question expects listeners to reply that a father exempts none of his children from instruction. Think about how foolish it would be, dads, with your children, to only instruct one and not the other. Just ignore the other. You didn't say anything to the other. But you're just disciplining, correcting this one. The question expects listeners to reply that a father exempts none of his children from instruction. Paternal discipline is an integral part, aspect of family life. And in an Old Testament context, the primary responsibility for family discipline belonged to the father. And God held him responsible for the instruction and correction of his sons and daughters. A father then disciplines his child because he loves him and wants them to experience a life that has God's approval. What a blessing it is to to read these two verses here in 7 and 8. God deals with you as with sons, as with daughters. That's the way he deals with you. That's why he's always loving in what he does. He loves you. He's relational. 
Those two are, are intricately linked together, aren't they? Ought to be. I want you to take hold of this. Put this in your pocket. God's discipline. Yes, it may very well hurt while you're being formed on the potter's wheel. But you can know that he shapes you and he corrects you when he does these things. He's doing so from a relational standpoint. In fact, the text implies a goodness found within his discipline. If it's absent in your life, verse 8, that ought to be a big warning sign. You're deemed illegitimate and not a child. A child of God undergoes discipline. Proverbs 13, 24, speaking mostly here of the earthly parent-child discipline. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. He who loves him disciplines him promptly. Proverbs 15.10 says, Harsh discipline is for him who forsakes the way, and he who hates correction will die. Proverbs 19.18, Chasten your son while there is hope, and do not set your heart on his destruction. Isn't that interesting? Destruction is the other side of not being disciplined. Proverbs 22.15, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. Proverbs 23, 14, and 15. Do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. Some of us need to hear that verse. He's not going to die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. Listen, there seems to be a connection between chastisement... And the soul. God has placed us in a position to be able to discipline them. And one of the Proverbs talks about harsh discipline. I think about the word scourging in our Hebrews text. Sometimes discipline is hard. It's hard not only to give. It's painful to receive. Children, amen? Amen. Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and rebuke give wisdom. Did you hear that? The rod and rebuke give wisdom. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. See, this explains why you ought not despise, verse 5, his discipline, or be discouraged by his rebuke, verse 5. As his child you can have the assurance that his discipline is meted out always from a relational standpoint. And that is as a child of the king. As a child of the king. And whom he chastens, he loves. We keep reading in the text. What else do we learn about God's discipline? It's not only loving. It's not only relational. But it's superior. It's superior. That's the word I've chosen here um, for a couple of ways. And I'll explain this word. Superior. Look at verse 9. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us. Praise God. 
And we paid them respect. You might underline that word, respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection? You might underline that word. Another word for subjection would be submission to the Father of spirits and live. Verse 9 highlights the response we have to discipline. And there's two key words there that are helpful. We paid our human fathers respect. And then there's this argument of how much more should we be in subjection or under submission to the father of spirits. So we paid our fleshly fathers respect. We ought then subject ourselves to the father of spirits. You see the the contrast here. One writer says that the author here has spoken of respect for human fathers and now he uses the verb submit in relation to God. This change, he says, is doubtless an intensification. The author is wishing to contrast a limited subordination with a total subordination. Respect for an earthly father, submission for the father of spirits. If we pay our human father's respect, then our response to the heavenly father ought to be much higher. God is our superior authority. And this ought to show itself as we move from respect because he's our earthly father to submission because he's our ultimate authority for all matters of life. Make sense? So, summarizing to this point, God's discipline, we're talking about the benefits of God's discipline. His discipline is always loving, it's always relational, it's always superior and ought to be reflected in our response to his discipline in our lives. This is God. We're talking about God, his discipline. Look at verse 10, I'm going to give you the fourth one. One more thing here I want you to see about benefit of God's discipline. Not only is it loving and relational and superior, but it is profitable. It's profitable. God's discipline is profitable. For they indeed, verse 10, for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he... God, for our profit, there it is, it's profitable, that we may be partakers of his holiness. You know, as parents, we oftentimes have good intentions, don't we? Huh? We've got good intentions. But I believe that many of us can think back on times when we thought what we thought was best in terms of correcting our children... It really didn't turn out for the best. You know, thinking about even our, our best, the best of our decisions are, are, are flawed. We, we err. We make wrong choices. Amen? We make wrong choices. We administer discipline imperfectly. 
We don't set out, though, to get it wrong. If we're honest, we, we, we take a step back on our disciplinary record with the children, we begin to see a lot of imperfections, a line perhaps, of, a record of imperfections which have not had perhaps the best results for those under our care. I'm simply acknowledging the imperfections of us as parents. Earthly parents, the text says, for a few days. They indeed for a few days. And this is interesting because I think it's speaking to what ought to be. Listen, parents, for a few days. Your children as they're young need much discipline, instruction. As they get older, they ought not have to have so much discipline. (laughs) That's the idea for a few days. Now, granted, it's going to be a little more than just a few days as we might think about a few days. There's going to be a, a heavy dose, a period of discipline as the children are younger. There seems to be a lot more. And there is a lot more. I believe it's intended to be that way. We're training them as they should go so that when they're old, they don't depart from it. So earthly parents, for a few days, chastened us as seemed best to them. In other words, they did what they supposed at the time to be the right thing. Look at the contrast. But he, God, for our profit. Remember, God's discipline is always profitable. For it always has a pure objective. It always has a godly motivation. Don't miss the purpose clause at the end of verse 10. That we may be partakers of his holiness. One writer says that God does not act on the basis of arbitrary judgments. In his infinite love and wisdom, he, listen, he consistently disciplines us through our lives for our benefit. For our good. For our profit. Literally, the word there has in mind with a view to what is beneficial. And so the beneficial result, as we look to the word, according to the text, the beneficial result is that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now we started here. Remember, to reject God's holiness is to reject him. What is God after in your life and in my life? He's after shaping and molding you to be just like his son. His desire is that you would be holy as he's holy. His desire is that you would be an imitator of him. Is there any desire to share in his holiness? Understand that your happiness and your holiness may lead you in two different directions. In fact, will more than likely lead you in two different directions. What you define as happy. 
what God defines as holy. God is holy. He's called his people to be holy. Your sanctification is his will for you. He's not called you to uncleanness. He's called you in holiness. And so rejecting, choosing to reject his call to holiness, you're choosing to reject God himself. That's the word in Thessalonians 4. He's after a beneficial, profitable result in your life that you may be partakers of his holiness. It's like, I wish I had a wheel here this morning, a potter's wheel. I was reminded of that wheel. We sang about that in one of the songs. You are the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded, yield. I just give up my rights. Yielded, I'm yielded, and I'm still. Shape me, mold me. Make me into what you want me to be, Lord. See, your time on the potter's wheel is intended for your benefit through God's discipline, he's shaping you into his masterpiece. And if that's so, then the potter's wheel, while it may be difficult to bear sometimes, you think about the potter and the strong hands shaping on the wheel. And shaping that clay, sometimes it's a firm pressing on the clay. And you might feel very well the effects of that pressing Listen, God's discipline is always loving, always relational, always superior because it's God himself who's dishing and meeting it out. And know that it's always profitable for your soul. We ought to be in the practice of giving him our hands and our feet Our eyes, I was thinking about the take my life and let it be. Consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Six stanzas of wonderful lyrics. Calling the people of God to just consecrate themselves. Set themselves apart. Yield themselves to what God wants using the members of our body as instruments of righteousness. Allowing him to shape us and fit us for his kingdom purposes. God's discipline is always loving, always relational. He deals with us as sons and daughters. It's always superior and always profitable. How does the text conclude? Last verse. I want to leave you with a so what here. What good does it do us to really understand the discipline of God in our lives? How how does knowing the benefits of God's discipline in our lives make difference at all in the now, in the present? Is, Is the difference only recognized when we reach the heavenly city? Look at verse 11. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. No discipline seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. I want you to notice something here. The key is in the last part of the the verse. To those who have been trained by it. For those who have been trained, those who have exercised themselves... 
under the hand of God's discipline, there awaits the promise of the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Remaining under the disciplinary hand of God might not seem joyful for the present. It does feel more painful than joyful. It does. It does bring about greater discomfort than comfort. It might seem like things are spiraling downhill quickly rather than steadily climbing higher. Discipline, in a generic sense, seems painful in the present and far from joyful. But I believe we gain appreciation for God's good discipline in our lives when we look unto Jesus, when we consider Him who endured the cross, despising its shame, having sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, He endured the cross with a joy set before Him. That's what the Word says. With the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. He didn't remain dead. He didn't stay in the grave. He's not still on the cross. He's risen. He's ascended and is now seated in majesty at the right hand of the Father's throne. So I believe that the so what of the text is this, that he endured the cross and he died. But joy came bursting on the scene when the stone was rolled away. Joy flourished three days later after the cross. Abundant joy reaches out still today. We sing the song, joy to the world. Why? The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. The joy of the Lord, the Bible says, is to be our strength. Joy is waiting on the other side. Death has no sting any longer for the follower of Jesus. Discipline might have a firm squeeze on you right now. But remember the benefits of God's discipline. It's always, say it with me, it's always what? Loving. It's always relational. It's always superior because it's God. He's the one giving it. It's superior we need to, to march in that direction as he gives us that. And it's always profitable. It's always profitable before it's always, it always has this inclination, always has this bent toward making us holy. Don't allow what seems to be painful to dictate your response to the discipline of God. Trust that a life trained and exercised under God's discipline, staying, remaining under God's discipline will reap the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Isaiah 32, 17 says the work of righteousness will be peace. And the effect of righteousness, I love this, the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. Quietness and assurance forever. MacArthur in his commentary says that discipline itself is not meant to be pleasant. <laughs> Think about it. If it were pleasant, it would have little corrective power. By its very nature, he writes, discipline is unpleasant to administer and to endure. Medicine, surgery, physical therapy, and other such treatments that we willingly endure are often very painful, uncomfortable, and inconvenient. We endure them for the sake of the end result, better health. 
How much more should we be willing to endure the Lord's treatment of our spiritual needs, which afterwards yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness? We should consider our troubles as spiritual treatment, which builds our character and our faith, our love and our righteousness. It will never look like it from the natural perspective. But from the perspective of faith, that's the context. We see that discipline is one of God's richest and most rewarding blessings on his children. I'd like to close by having you turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 18. Just want to read the first few verses. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house. And there I will cause you to hear my words. And then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. And then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look! As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Friends, God is the potter. You are the clay. He can take the clay of your life and do what seems good in his eyes, transforming you in the process to look more like himself. The discipline of God is an ongoing work of God. He he started it the day that he made you. (laughs) The day he thought about you. Because all of your days were ordained from the beginning. The Bible says that he who began a good work in you will complete it until. He will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Tell me, friends, have we gotten to the point of the day of Jesus Christ yet? Has that day come? No. So what's that tell us from the word? What's the word mean? He's continuing to work on us until that day. He's the potter. We're the clay. That means ongoing work on the potter's wheel. The Bible calls this sanctification. Set apartness to the Lord and education in holiness. You know, when, when your back gets out of alignment, you, you tend to go to the chiropractor. When wisdom teeth need extracted, you go to see the dentist. Our windows needed replaced recently, and so we hired someone who could fix the problem. And they installed the windows. They did what they do well. You know, we all have work That needs to be done all the time. Maintenance is ongoing, isn't it? The body needs ongoing health checkups. The teeth need cleaned every once in a while. The car needs a tune-up. car needs new brakes. Your spiritual life needs the touch of the master potter. Why is it that we maintenance everything in this life except our heart and soul and mind? The touch of the master often gets 
administered through the discipline of God. Remember that his discipline is for our good, it's for our profit, it's for our benefit that we might be partakers in his holiness. I came across someone who wrote these words, an anonymous, there wasn't a name attached to it. But I found it a fitting ending to our text here in Hebrews 12. It just simply says this, welcome sweet discipline. Discipline designed for my joy. Discipline designed to make me what God wants me to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a good God. We talk often of you being good. Lord, in our lives, we, we encounter situations where we get so focused and caught in the circumstance. Perhaps we too, like the writer has addressed here, perhaps we too have forgotten the exhortation that speaks to us. Lord, you've given to us your very word. It instructs us on how we are to be living. And it's instructing us and shaping us, funneling us into a path of holiness. Father, I pray it would be our desire as a church to be holy. Yes, you've called us to be holy, but because you're holy, we would desire to be like you. There's so many other things in this world today that we want to be like other people. We see all the, these people that are in, in Hollywood and people that are in sports and people that are in fine arts. Whatever it may be, we look to these people and we have this picture of these people. Father, I pray that we would look instead to you. That we would consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Lest we become discouraged and weary in our soul. You are a, a good heavenly father who is all about tending to our soul. May we desire in the remaining days we have to yield ourselves and submit ourselves to your discipline, to allow you to do what you need to do. to shape us and mold us into what you desire us to be. Father, we look forward to that result. You've begun a good work. And Father, we're asking this morning, it's our prayer this morning, we ask of you to continue that good work in us all the way to the finish line. May we run the race looking unto Jesus, considering him who endured along the way. And may we always remember that your discipline in our lives. It's always good. It's always good. It's always loving, always relational, always superior, always profitable for our soul. May we rest in that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.